First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now here's why you can do that. Here's why we can love one another. Uh, verse 23, because we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We just sang that song. It's in Isaiah. All flesh is as grass, all the glory of man, all the skyscrapers, all the inventions, all the iPhones, all the wonderful movies. Uh, they one day will wither and its flower will fall away. And only the word of God endures forever. Therefore, in light of this, in light of that experience that we've been born again, let us lay aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy and evil speaking, the word is slander. And as newborn babes, as these new creations, desire the pure milk of the word of God. Why? That we might grow. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, and Peter loves the scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to the disobedient, to those who reject, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a rock of stumbling and offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word in which they were also appointed. God loved all the world. God doesn't want anyone to perish. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the practices of him who called you out of darkness. Isn't that amazing? Into his marvelous light. Who were once not a people of God, but now are a people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. So we started First Peter last week, and I said it was very important to understand the audience. Who is Peter writing to? And in chapter 1, verse 1, it's very clear. He's writing to who he calls pilgrims or sojourners. People that have been scattered all throughout the Roman Empire who, by the way, are living under heavy persecution. Now, we're all persecuted. We all have trials. We all suffer. These people were going through something we probably never will see in this nation. The heat, literally, of the Roman Empire uh, of the furnace has been turned way up. We'll get into that when we get to the end of the chapter where we talk about the fiery furnace and the fiery trial and Nero having... Blame Christians for Rome burning. We'll, we'll get to all of that. But I like the, fra the phrase aliens. He's writing to aliens, and in some ways, that's who we are. We are pilgrims. We are aliens. We are strangers. Here's a simple way to prove it out. Anybody think you're strange? <laughs> yeah, your relatives think you're strange. Your neighbors think you're strange. Why do they get in a car every day and drive to that place? Why do they give? Why do they serve? Why do they go on mission trips? Yeah, we're strange to the things of this world. We are aliens. What that means is we reside here now, but heaven is our home. There's another realm. There's another place. And that's why we're passing through lightly. Hopefully we're traveling through lightly in this world. 
And so Peter is writing to us to tell us how to live in this life. If we are pilgrims, how do we live? How do we live before God and, and government? And, and what does God want from us? That's First Peter. Peter's writing this letter, probably from Rome. Uh, he says he's writing from Babylon. That was probably code for Rome. But he's writing at the end of his life. This is very important. Uh, John chapter 21 is one of my favorite chapters because I love John so much. I love his gospel. And at the end of John's gospel, chapter 21, uh, Peter's taking the guys back fishing. Now, this isn't pleasure fishing, right? This is back to their old way of living. Jesus, who they thought the Messiah, is dead. Uh, Peter has denied him three times. Peter's a natural-born leader. Guys, get your nets. We're going back fishing. We're going back to the old life. And you all know the story. They see a figure on the beach. He's lit a fire. He's making breakfast. And he calls out, have you caught anything? And Peter's like, I've seen this movie before. Jesus says, cast your net to the other side. And then they get this haul of fish. And they bring in the fish, and Jesus makes breakfast. He breaks it. They eat it. I love that scene, by the way, because Jesus is in his resurrected body, and he's still eating, which means we're going to eat in our resurrected bodies. And I am so thankful. If, it, if it's good here, oh my gosh, it's going to be amazing. There's the wonderful restoration of Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Three rejections, three restorations. Wonderful, right? But then Jesus says something Peter doesn't want to hear. He said, Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself. You went where you wished. There's coming a time where men will gird you and take you to a place where you do not want to go. And Jesus, or John writes that Jesus was signifying by what death he would give glory to God. Now, we all say we want to know the will of God. Peter gets the will of God here, and what do you think his response is? What about John? What's going to happen to him? Is he going to die that way too? And uh, Jesus says, don't worry about John. You know, I've got a plan for him. Peter begins to understand that he's got something to live out, but that death is imminent. And it's imminent now. In, the, in this book, he's going to say, the time of my departure is at hand. Here's why this is important. If you lived in the first century and you received a letter from Peter, remember I said he was a rock star? I mean, this is the guy that walked with Jesus, saw the transfiguration. To get his letter was very important. And as they received the letter, these are the final wishes of a dying man. The final wishes of a dying man who had been with Jesus at the Last Supper and post-resurrection has one thing and one thing to tell us, and it's this. If you're going to do anything in life, Obey God's word. Trust God's plan for your life with all your heart. And you ready? Obey. Obey. Because that's what Peter has done. And God has done things in his life he could have never imagined. Now, nobody believes Peter didn't write 1 Peter. There's a few eggheads who think they're smarter than everybody else. And they'll tell you, oh, Peter didn't write this because the Greek is so powerful. But you know that's what God does? When you become a believer, he transforms you, and God gives you new aptitudes, and you know, I believe Peter wrote this, or had a writer, and I think this is Peter, and these are his final wishes. 
Now, he's going to tell us to love one another, submit to one another. Uh, husbands submit to wives. He's going to tell us about government, submitting to authority, love one another, the church. He's going to tell us all these beautiful things. But his starting point is the new birth. Verse 23. Having been born again, he's assuming that's your condition, not of incorruptible seed, but cor not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed, the word of God that lives and abides forever. He talks about the born again experience. Now, the word's been misused in our culture. It's only used twice in the Bible, here and in John chapter three, when Nicodemus, who's at least 70 years old, who Jesus said was the teacher in Israel, comes to Jesus at night and says, no one can do what you're doing unless God be with him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I know you know the scriptures, I know you're a leader in Israel, but unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. Now just to clarify that for visitors or seekers, uh, we're not saying you have to join our religion to go to heaven. Is everybody clear on that? I had a stepdad who would tell his friends, my son joined born again. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not how it works. I don't care what church you sit in on Sunday morning. Uh, I don't care what Bible version you read. Scripture says you have to be born again. Nicodemus said, how could a man be old and be born again? And Jesus answered, he said, which is born of the flesh is flesh. Everyone in here has two parents who birthed you and passed down to you a sinful nature. You were children of wrath apart from God. When you confess your sins and Jesus is the Christ, you are born again. It's a miracle. It's when your spirit is made alive for the very first time so you now have ears to hear and eyes to see. Scales fall and your heart is changed. R.C. Sproul said regeneration or this rebirth is the result of the immediate work of the Holy Spirit upon a human soul once dead to the things of God but now quickened and made alive. That's a beautiful thing. And Jesus said, Unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God, whether you're five or 55. Now, last week I talked about Billy Graham because he died and we saw his funeral. And he presided probably in the last 50 years over a great awakening, so many people coming to faith, an evangelist. But I wanna take you back a couple hundred years before that and talk to you about a man named George Whitfield. George Whitfield has been called by many America's spiritual founding father. He was an Englishman who came to the shores of America and began to preach revival. On October 12, 1740, in the fading light of a cool autumn evening, the 25-year-old evangelist George Whitfield ascended a platform on Boston Common. Before him stood 20,000 people. Now, that's nothing in our day, but think about this. Um, if the crowd estimates were even remotely accurate, this was the largest assembly ever gathered in the history of the American colonies. In fact, Boston's entire population was about 17,000 in 1740. Whitfield had already seen crowds this massive, however, but they were in the great city of London. But these teeming New England throngs gathered in the region's small fishing villages and provincial towns amazed him blew him away. He became literally the first celebrity in America. 
To put it in perspective, George Washington, who's probably the greatest American, was only eight years old. John Adams was four, and Thomas Jefferson, who would write the Declaration of Independence, had not even been born again. If you want to know what made this nation great, the seeds of the gospel went into the soil years before these men ever had a chance to take up authority. What made Whitfield famous? Number one, he's one of the greatest orators in history. This will make you laugh. Number two, he preached outdoors. You're probably thinking, big deal. So did Billy Graham, and we do it at Sizzling Summer, right? It was unheard of in that day in the Anglican or Episcopal church. Many of the local clergy were against him. Uh, he preached practical application of the scriptures. In other words, the Bible has practical application for your life. Now, when he was in Philadelphia in 1739, Ben Franklin loved this about him. And Franklin didn't like any of the clergy in Philadelphia. He loved Whitfield. He loved Whitfield so much that 45 times he put Whitfield's revivals in his newspaper and eight times literally printed Whitfield's sermons on the front of his newspaper. Now, he had an ulterior motive. Whitfield made Franklin rich, and many people will say Franklin made him famous. The other thing Franklin loved is he was philanthropic, gave most of the offerings to orphanages in Georgia, which he had started and was very proud of. But the hallmark of Whitfield's ministry is he preached conversion. He preached the new birth. He preached it because while a student in Oxford studying theology, he saw the gap in his life that I showed you last week, the gap between what Jesus promised and the way life was. He struggled, as many of us struggle. And then one day he picked up a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, and he began to understand that religious duties were meaningless unless a human being had vital communion with God unless there was intimacy in a relationship. This distinction made between religious works and communion with God shed, as he said, I quote, a ray of divine life that instantaneously darted upon his soul. And from that moment, and not until then, Whitfield said, did I know that I must be a new creation? I must be born again. He said, just like I know the day I was born, I know the day I was reborn. His biographer went on to say that George Whitfield was the key figure in the first generation of Anglo-American evangelical Christianity. Whitfield and legions of other evangelical pastors and lay people helped establish a new interdenominational religious movement in the 18th century and were committed to the gospel of conversion, the new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the preaching of revival across Europe and America. Now, the more inquisitive of you are saying, did Franklin ever become a believer? Franklin, in his own biography, said, Whitfield used to uh, claim that he prayed for me time and time again for my conversion, but he never had the satisfaction, Franklin said, of his prayers ever being answered. So that's Ben Franklin. Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, same experience. Uh, he was a rebel growing up. In fact, he wrote a book called Rebel with a Cause. Billy Graham used to be gone for summers, months at a time, three, four months. Franklin Graham, again, a rebel growing up. 
but in his 20s wound up working for his dad's ministry, work crusades. And one day his dad had to sit him down and say, son, I love you, but you're probably gonna have to find something else to do in life because you can't work in this ministry if you're not a believer. Several months later at a crusade, Franklin Graham knelt on the ground and said a sinner's prayer, not at a crusade, but in the hotel room next to his bed. You know what the scripture that ministered to him was? Unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. And the startling thing about that, he said, I heard my dad preach on that a hundred times, but the reason it ministered to me is because I grew up in the Graham household. I had the privilege. The gospel was in our house, but I realized, just like Billy Graham, my dad was a man, I'm a man, and unless every man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. And Franklin has done amazing things. So Peter begins this letter with a born-again experience because what he's trying to tell us is that everything God would have for us and everything he's going to write in this letter is impossible without conversion. You can't love one another. You can't be generous and you can't live up to the standards of Scripture unless there's a metamorphosis of heart. And I love how Peter ties this to the scripture. He quotes Isaiah, all flesh is as grass. We're all a flower quickly fading. Only God's word endures forever. In a month we'll be in Israel. And on our first day we get down to Caesarea where Herod built this wonderful city for the Roman aristocrats. And there's some of the best ruins in the world. There's still a stadium that seats about 20,000. There's an aqueduct, a hippodrome there. And I always tell the people in my talk, I said, most of what you're going to see in Israel are ruins of what Herod built. Herod the Great, by the way, he, he named himself that. He was an egotist. He was brilliant. He was a wonderful builder. But that's what we're looking at. We're looking at his ruins. It's all faded away. But the reason we're on this trip is because we're here because of a man who built nothing except human hearts and who claimed to be the word of God. And 2,000 years, the word is in our hearts and it's on your laps and it endures forever. So I gotta leave you with this question before I get into the heart of what I wanna talk about. Have you been born again? Have you had a spiritual conversion? And I'm not saying fireworks had to go off or, or, or you know, it had to be as profound as some testimonies you've heard. All I'm saying, was there a time where you reasoned out that Christ is who he said he was, you confessed your sins and he became your savior. If you have, wonderful. There's a place for you in heaven and all the promises are true. If you have not, that's still okay. But my encouragement is keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. Because there is a God who loves you and wants to do great things in your life. And if you need to talk to a pastor or an elder, we're here for you and we love to walk you through that process. But now that we have experienced conversion, what does God have for us? That's chapter two. Therefore, laying aside all these other things, we should come to him as newborn babes desiring the pure milk of God's word that we might grow. Does everybody know God wants you to grow? Didn't you want your kids to grow? Or for those of you who have kids, don't you want them to grow? I love my adult children. I love to see what they're doing and how they're growing. God wants you to grow. He wants you to thrive. 
And I believe God has a personal growth plan for every believer. It's tailored for you. It's different than mine. We're reading the same book, but we all have a personal growth plan. And it's not about the results. Some will be 30, 60, and 100-fold. That's all different because we all have different capacity. But at the end of the day, God wants us to grow, and I want to give you five principles of God's growth plan. The first principle of God's growth plan is obedience, obedience. Uh, Think about Peter's life, right? What's his first encounter? Jesus says, Peter, drop your nets, lay it aside, and come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. The audible word of God to Peter was, lay it aside, Peter. That's what you've done, that's what your father's done. I want you to leave. Now here's the cool thing about obedience. Once you come to Christ, The first obedience step is the easiest one. It's right in the Bible. You don't have to hear God's voice. You don't have to search for it. You know what it is? Baptism. The Bible says the first obedience step is to walk into the waters of baptism and acknowledge before people that I am aligned with Christ. He's my Savior and Lord. You guys will get a chance to do that at Sizzling Summer. We've seen over 1,400 baptisms. Always a wonderful time of testimony. And then there are things in the Bible that God asks to do that involve obedience. Uh, one of them is to be generous with our money, right? To give. Uh, when I became a new Christian and I was starting to learn, I found out that God's requirement was 10%. Now, in my church, it was an extreme charismatic church. People would come to the altar, people would pray over them, and they would fall back. In fact, one of the things you could do to serve in a church was to be a catcher. You would catch people who fell back. When I heard we had to give 10%, I thought they were fainting because they had to give 10%. Uh, The denomination I grew up, you threw a dollar in. If you threw a five in, you were a rock star. And I had to learn that this was a big test of faith, that if God really was first in our life and he really was the supplier, that we would support his work. And then there was a, a law of resupply. Jesus said, given, it'll be given to you, good measure, pressed over, men will give in your bosom. And, and you start to get in this relationship with God where you experience giving and receiving. Uh, another step is beginning to understand God wants us to serve, how we treat people, and it's all in Scripture. Then there's gray areas where there's a whisper of the Spirit. Uh, One of the early whispers for me was to uh, get rid of rock music. I had 500 albums, this massive collection. This is for everyone. It was for me. And God said, I want you to get rid of that because much of those lyrics are counter to what I'm trying to teach you in Scripture. And I had to obey. For some people, it's alcohol. For some people, it's sexuality. I mean, there's a hundred things that are personal for each and every one of us. Sometimes they're not even wrong things. They're just personal for your growth thing. Somebody might tell you, binge watching on Netflix has to be laid aside. Now we're really getting close (laughs) to the real world, to the real life. Peter says, laying aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, The imagery he's using here is taking off old garments and putting on new, which, by the way, is why we dress up for Easter. It's a sign that we're new creations. You know what Peter's saying? Get as far away from this old man as you can. 
This was your old life. This is the old you. Get as far as you can from this person. Now, here's what happens. When you become a Christian and you're born again, you have this, in, this new capacity to experience God. But not much else changed, okay? So in other words, when I became a Christian, I didn't get smarter. I couldn't jump any higher. I'm still playing college basketball. I wish that would have happened. Um, I didn't get kinder, more compassionate, generous. I had to grow in all those things, but now I had the ability to grow into them. Does that make sense? What's God asking you to lay aside? Lay aside all malice, slander, hypocrisy. Malice is a hard issue where we have a purposeful desire to hurt someone else. Do you know why we do that? Because somewhere along the line we were hurt. Hurt people hurt people. Somewhere along the line in your family of origin or somewhere in your experience, someone hurt you deeply. Uh, in the area of attachment psychology, they talk about the early years of attachment are very important. Some of you had no attachment. So you were hurt. And the only way to deal with hurt is to hurt other people. That, that's the way of the world. Peter said, forget all that. Lay it aside. God's made all the difference. He's your father. He's your maker. Every hair on your head is numbered. You're the apple of his eye. Lay aside hypocrisy. Who were the hypocrites in Jesus' day? Pharisees, right? You know what's scary about that? They were the Bible people. Whenever I speak to pastors, I say, you know what our, you know what your greatest fear should be? Not that you're going to commit adultery or run off with money or screw something up in your church. The greatest fear is you would ever become a Pharisee. Someone who knows God's word so much, but you don't live it anymore. There's no passion in your life. And you can't see other great things God is doing. You're so right, you're dead right. That's the greatest fear we all have. Peter said, lay it aside. Lay aside slander. You know what slander is? Slander is when you say something about somebody else that's not true. You're saying it because you heard it passed down the line. I hear stuff about me that I really just laugh. It is so far removed from anything that could even be plausible that I just chuckle. Peter's saying, what a community we could be if we just laid all this aside. Imagine what church could be like. And here's his argument. It's in Ephesians 2.1. This is Paul. You were once dead in transgressions and sins in which you lived your life following the ways of the world. I love that. Young people think they're kind of blazing new trails, right? They walk around in their cool fashion, which was all created for them. Remember Devil Wears Prada? Remember that scene where uh, Anne Hathaway makes fun because they're talking about a belt, the color of the belt? And then Meryl Streep goes through that whole thing about that belt that you fished out of a discount rack was selected for you by the people in this room. All the fashion out there, you're just following whatever. Uh, you, you didn't come up with any of that. You didn't come up with any of the things you do. It was all pre-planned for you. You're a follower. Nobody's blazing any trails. 
You follow the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. You lived your life among them, gratifying the cravings of your flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, you were children of wrath. You were floating downstream. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love and kindness, caught you in the middle and reversed you. And now you're swimming upstream. Now you are blazing a trail. Now you are strange. Now you are a pilgrim. Now you are an alien because of his abundant mercy. Can you imagine where we'd be leading aimless lives, just trying to please our flesh? Peter's saying, if you want to grow, if you really want to find out what God has for you, you're going to have to start hearing God's voice and obey. The second thing is not here in 1 Peter, it's implied, is we learn by failure. A lot of us get down on ourselves when we fail. Uh, guilt's a big part of our experience for some reason or another. You know what Peter's failures were? He walked on water and sunk. He couldn't pay taxes for he and Jesus. He put his foot in his mouth way too many times. He denied Jesus three times. And he, his plan for saving Jesus was to like cut off everybody's ear and kill everybody in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet he was wonderfully restored. I'm gonna give you guys an illustration that you'll never forget. It's not because I'm good at illustrations. It's because this illustration you will see every day and you'll remember it. You ready? There is a reason why your windshield on your car is significantly larger than your rearview mirror. I'll say that one more time. There is a reason why the windshield on your car is significantly larger than your rearview mirror. Why is it significantly larger? For you to drive safely and to experience the driving experience, you need to see widely and you need to see the road ahead. Every once in a while, you can look in that rearview mirror, and we should, but the preponderance of time, 90% of the time, is looking straight ahead. Paul said, the things I have done are past, they're, they're gone. And you know what? Even when you look ahead, you're going to see new horizons and things God had for you. You know what else you're going to see? Mountains. And you're going to see valleys. But I can tell you something, with, after I've walked with God for 35, 37 years, those mountains one day will be in your rearview mirror. And those valleys one day will be in your rearview mirror. We've got to be a forward-looking people. And I'm as guilt-ridden as you are. I look in that rearview mirror. I see things I don't want to see. I blame things for myself for things that God has forgiven me. And I think if Peter were here today, he'd get us by the collar and say, Please look at the road of head. Look at all that God can do, more than you can ask or think. And I think some of us need to hear it. I know I do. The third part of God's growth plan is in verse 2. As newborn babes, you should desire the pure milk of the word of God that you might grow thereby. The word of God is often linked to food. Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll. Proverbs talks about it as the honeycomb. Jesus talks about it as the bread of life. 
Uh, you're never going to grow apart from the Word of God. I did a series several years ago called 10. You might be able to find it on the internet. 10 things I know about spiritual growth, 10 things I know about money, 10 things I never do again. This year on the men's retreat, and I know you can find this, I redid the 10 things I know about spiritual growth. I'm not going to go through them. I'll put the list up for you. The first one is the most important. Spiritual growth is primarily my responsibility. In other words, in my life, no one is responsible for my growth but me. No one's responsible for your growth but you. Spiritual disciplines must be a habit. You have to join a prevailing church, discover and exercise your gifts, master the art of gratitude, embrace the seasons of life, read widely, go on a missions trip or Bible tour every five years, guard your soul, and appreciate all the streams. You do these 10 things and don't grow, I'll resign. That's how, that's how much I believe in them. Three of them involve the Bible getting into your system. Uh, there's a new curriculum out now based on a study someone did that if you read the Bible once a week, you'll never change. If you read the Bible twice a week, the study says, you'll never change. If you read the Bible four out of seven days, you will change drastically. And so they've built a curriculum around this. You might be saying, well, if I give my life to Christ and I'm a Christian, why do I need to do this? And only C.S. Lewis could answer this so eloquently and thoughtfully. He says in Mere Christianity, his definition of faith is a sense where, he said, I want to use the word, and faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your moods. So for all of you that are married or will be married, one day you were in a mood where you said, I want to live with this person for the rest of my life. For those who have been married more than five years, do you ever get up and not feel that way since? <laughs> Don't answer that question, especially if your spouse is here. But the reason why you go on is, in a, in a more sound time, you made that reason and that commitment. Lewis said that I know by experience that moods change. I know that by experience, now that I'm a Christian, that I have moods in which the whole thing at times looks improbable, but when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. What he's saying is that as an atheist, he had doubts. He would look at creation and believers and, and so many things, and he'd say, oh my gosh, maybe there is a God. Moods can change. Lewis went on to say, that is why daily prayers and religious readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examine 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by way of argument and how many would have just drifted away? And he's answering his own question. They probably drifted away. Hebrews says you should give the most 
earnest heed to the things you've heard, lest you drift away. So it's so important to get the Bible into your system. The fourth part of God's growth plans in verse four. Coming to him, that's Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected by men, chosen by God and precious. You, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, who once were not a part of the people of God, but now you are the people of God. You know what's beautiful about Christianity? No one, no one was meant to walk it alone. Now, I said spiritual growth is your responsibility. That doesn't mean you have to do it alone. It is a beautiful thing to walk it together. It's a beautiful thing to be part of this community. And I love what he says here. You have to come to Jesus. That speaks of intimacy. That speaks of relationship. And he talks about this spiritual house. It's very interesting. Uh, the temple was there for a reason. It was a picture of Christ. All the sacrifices, all the incense, it was all leading us to Christ. Once the veil was torn in two, buildings were no longer a necessity except to house people. So while we're here, this is a sanctuary. Uh, two o'clock, this is an auditorium. That's all it is. We are a holy nation. There are no holy nations. The collective people of God, we're a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood. We are offering sacrifices to God. A priest isn't anymore. The fruit of your lips in worship, you gave praise. When you gave into the offering, you now are a priest unto God. Wednesday in my class, Goliath Must Fall, we're gonna look at some of the things that stop us from this. Fear and comfort and some other things. And the final way we grow will be the rest of 1 Peter and a lot of 2 Peter. We grow through suffering. If you are sucking air and you're on this planet, you will suffer. No one's immune. The rain falls in the just and the unjust. Fiery trials, suffering are a part of life. We're all gonna go through it. It's gonna make us stronger, at least in this life. Since I mentioned C.S. Lewis, uh, I'll tell you about his experience. He was single most of his life. In his 50s, he met a woman called Joy, fell in love. And he wrote a book called Surprised by Joy because he never thought he would marry. A few years after they were married, she got cancer and died, and he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And he went up to his study one day, and he sat down next to his brother, and he said, I've written all my life, but now I've learned that experience is the greatest teacher and how I hate it. We're gonna learn through suffering. It's not pleasant, it's not something we've asked for, it's a part of life. But God has given us people and the Holy Spirit and a wonderful church to walk through the fire with us. And God is so good and he's so gracious. And as many people suffering drives them from Christ, there's so many people that suffering drives them to Christ. So read ahead, read 1 Peter. God wants you to grow. God doesn't want you to be 35 years old sitting in a high chair with a baby bottle. It's not saying that milk is for Christians and there's meat for, for older Christians. That's true in some regards. 
What it's saying is if you're going to grow, you need the passion that you had as a new believer even now. Your passion should be like a baby with milk. You should desire God's word. You should desire to grow until God takes you home. That's God's personal growth plan. Some of us are stunted. Some of us are in the proverbial high chair. But that can all change. It can all change. And it needs to. And I pray you're growing in grace and the knowledge of who he is and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. There is a life far greater for you than what you've conceived for yourself.